From Brown Cow Studios in Gallatin, Gateway, Montana, this is News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham with our second year anniversary show. Uh, But do you know who's been on the air a lot longer than News Nerds? It's the British Broadcasting Corporation, or the BBC. This week we're talking to historian, author, and former BBC insider David Hendy. His latest books, The BBC, A People's History, and The BBC, A Century on Air, detail the 100 years of the BBC. We'll talk about the BBC's founding in 1922, its role in the Second World War, and the challenges the service faces today. It's Wednesday, April 13th, 2022, and this is News Nerds. Hey guys, it's been two years since this podcast has been on the air. It's It's been two years since Easter in 2020 now. It's kind of amazing, but it's true. And all of this is thanks to you and your support. This microphone that I'm talking into right now, it's because of you. And also some of the databases that I use, it's also because of you. So thank you so much for that. And I, I'm not going to give too much away, but uh, there's some some cool stuff that's going to happen in the coming months to celebrate this anniversary. Uh, only two years, you know, not a hundred years like the BBC, but you know, it's something, right? So stay tuned for all of that. You can subscribe on our website to get kind of some sneak peeks once in a while and get uh, emails once we've published episodes. I would recommend that. You can also donate on our website. You can find pretty much everything on our website. Um, but all this support, thank you so much. This is going to make so much more possible, including maybe some like new uh, snazzy live events because of this election year that we're in. Uh, I'm, I'm already looking forward to that, which is, yep, I'm not going to give too much away about that. But, you know, wink, wink, this could be a big year for news nerds. Better stay tuned. You're going to hear some big things, okay? You better. Thank you. Here's my interview with David Hendy. David Hendy is the writer of the BBC A People's History, which was published in the UK, and the BBC A Century on Air, which is the United States version. He's also the emeritus professor from the University of Sussex. Welcome to the program. Thank you very much. So... Uh, Asa Briggs, uh, another historian, wrote a large series on the BBC. How is the book that you just published different from Asa Briggs' series that was published in the the 1900s? Yeah, well, I mean, Asa Briggs published, I mean, it's a monumental work that he created. He started work on it in the 1950s and finished it and published the last volume in the early 1990s. Uh, So it's five volumes and they add up to about 4,000 pages. Uh, And then uh, Gene Seaton wrote a sixth volume. So there have been six volumes of an official history of the BBC, uh, which adds up to 4,000 plus pages. And it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm a real admirer of that work. It provides a kind of essential roadmap to understanding at least the first 65 years of the BBC's 100-year history. And, and Asa Briggs and his successor, Gene Seaton, they both really get the BBC. They get under the skin. But 
it's not everyone's cup of tea and it's certainly not within anyone's sort of price range to be able to invest in a six volume official history. And so apart from anything else, I wanted to use the centenary of the BBC in 2022 as a chance to offer readers a single volume account. And now the last thing I wanted to do for that was to just crush four and a half thousand pages of BBC history into 400 pages or so, because I think that would be breathless. I mean, the scale of the task, if you think about it, is monumental. It's not just that the BBC has been around for a hundred years. If you, well, it's impossible to add up the number of programmes it's broadcast, but we know it's somewhere between 10 million and 20 million programmes. It's been broadcasting in Britain and globally it's radio and then it's television and then it's the internet and it's in multiple languages so it's a kind of vast arena to look at now asa briggs's approach which was the right approach at the time was to really look at the bbc as an institution uh, and how it uh, was built up and how it established itself so in many ways it's an institutional history that looks more than anything else at the top level battles to establish the BBC, the leading figures, the directors general, and their relationship with the governments of the day. So it is a version which tends to look at the top level uh, of BBC activity, not exclusively, but one of the things that I wanted to do, and this is where I wear my hat as a former programme maker. So. I, I, I worked at the BBC as a, as a journalist and a producer for seven years, a um, long time ago now, uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I've been studying and researching the BBC since then uh, within universities. But that programme maker's perspective, if you like, stayed with me. For me, the BBC is something which evolves not just from the top down, but from the bottom up. It evolves through the, the thoughts, the ideas, the debates that programme makers have in their production offices and the studios and so on. And I wanted to, to capture that, to convey, if you like, the human stories uh, much more centrally, to, to put the programme makers centre stage, if you like. And there was a way of doing that. And the way of doing that is that the BBC has its own amazing oral history archive, 600 or so interviews with former members of staff, intimate, frank accounts of people's career at the BBC, uh, their accounts of where they were and what they were doing at certain events like the start of television or the Second World War or the coronation of Queen Elizabeth and so on. And I really, really wanted to use those and they haven't really been used very extensively. They've been used very selectively they haven't been made available to the public or to academic researchers and fortunately eight years ago i was given access to the entire collection of oral history interviews of the bbc so that allowed me if you like to tell the story very much from quotes the people's point of view the program makers themselves so that's really where i would describe the difference between what i was trying to do and what asa briggs has done before well, tell me about your your work uh, as an insider in the BBC. 
Well, I, so um, this is a long time ago, <laughs> but I joined the BBC as a, as a trainee journalist. So I'd, I'd been at university, I'd studied history, medieval history as it happens, uh, as an undergraduate and then as a postgraduate. Um, I was doing a, um, a PhD at Oxford University, which I didn't finish because I was much more interested in filmmaking and journalism and things like that. Anyway, I joined the BBC as a trainee journalist, worked in different newsrooms. I ended up working for a evening current affairs programme called The World Tonight, which was on the domestic radio network, BBC Radio 4, and also making documentaries for Radio 4 in a series called Analysis. And that was seven years at the BBC in the late 80s and early 90s, so um, I was working in news and current affairs during, for instance, the first Gulf War, the fall of Margaret Thatcher, the fall of the, the Soviet Union, um, and the, the revolutions in Eastern Europe in 1989, 1990. Um, so it was a very, very interesting time to be a journalist at, at the BBC, the programme maker. Since leaving the BBC, which I did in 1993, as I say, I've been working full time as an academic, but I've always been passionately interested in, in keeping my hands in with radio. So I've, I've written and presented a number of series for the BBC since then. So um, a few years ago, I presented a 30 part series for uh, BBC Radio 4, which was called Noise, A Human History. And that was really a history of sound and listening, or rather it was a it was a 30 part history of humanity with a focus on sound. Um, and uh, I've done a series like that for the BBC, as I say, as a sort of an outsider. Um, so, yes, I've been on both sides of the microphone, both as a producer behind the scenes, but also writing and presenting. And I don't. I don't want to pretend that that gives me a kind of magical powers of insight, but I think that sense of being both an academic who has to objectively look at the BBC and look at it as, with a critical eye and work through archives and evidence and so on to try and piece together a persuasive account of how the BBC develops provides some sort of help for me because it allows me to get a sense of understanding where the program makers are coming from. And I think that where it really helps is the idea that it's very common for people to think of the BBC as this grand institution, which is, which is a kind of faceless monolithic corporation and that programs are made to order um, and there's a very clear hierarchy. But I know as a programme maker that actually it's not quite like that, that actually you have a fair amount of freedom as a programme maker to, to make programmes. You're not always conscious of all the grand policy debates that are going on above you, that very often uh, mistakes are made not through some deliberate or sinister policy, but just because you made the wrong call. Um, that there are rivalries, that there's internal competition, and that your colleagues are flesh and blood human beings with their own ideals and passions and fallibilities and, and, and so on. So I think it helps you to 
understand the BBC as a sort of people's organisation that isn't just a monolith uh, that's guilty of groupthink, if you like. It's, it's a, it, to understand the BBC is to understand its complexity and all its different cultures. Tell me about uh, how the BBC started in now, 1922, now what was 100 years ago. Well, there's a, there's a sort of simple answer and a more complicated answer to that, to that question. So the simple one is, well, it, it, it went on air as the BBC for the first time on the 14th of November 1922 uh, with a short news bulletin and, and a weather forecast. And it went on air just in time to report the next day's general election results. It had formed as a company about a month before, on the 18th of October, 1922. Now, its creation as the British Broadcasting Company, it was a company before it was a corporation, was really a practical solution uh, to a problem with radio or wireless. Now, radio as a technology had been around actually already for about 25 years. It had been developed in the 1890s. So before that, you had wireless telegraphy, Morse code signals traveling at speed along telegraph wires, and then wireless, which was Morse code signals radiating freely through the air. And and this was being used, first of all, by the military and, and private companies for sending messages privately. And in the years either side of the First World War, there grew up a kind of uh, a, a sort of small but lively population of wireless amateurs, as they were called. Uh, in other words, people who were eavesdropping on all these messages and these signals and starting to send messages and signals themselves. It was still mostly telegraphy, in other words, Morse code. Eventually it was voices could be heard as well. It was, te- it was like wireless telephony, if you like. And coming out, coming out of the First World War, uh, there was this sort of profusion of people broadcasting. In America, by 1920, 1921, you've got lots of radio stations, quite small affairs. So the British Broadcasting Company began as a company in October 1922, began broadcasting in November 1922. And it was really a response to a problem that had grown up with radio. And that's because radio had been around for 25 years or so, uh, invented as a, as a technology that was designed to replace the, the telegraph, I suppose, in the 19th century. Uh, so sending Morse code signals and messages wirelessly through the air rather than along cables. Um, and it had been used by the military and used by private companies and so on. And then in the years either side of the First World War, you've got the growing up of a, of a community of amateur radio listeners who are eavesdropping on all these signals intended for other people and who start also broadcasting signals and messages themselves and start to be interested in what they're listening to and start to demand a kind of a service. They want some something tangible and meaningful to listen to. Um, and the British post office, which is the government department that's in charge of communication, looked across to what was happening in America, where there are a large number of radio stations popping up, all competing with each other, 
all uh, uh, interfering with each other on the airwaves. And it decided that it didn't want to have what it called chaos in the ether in the UK. And the plan was therefore for all the existing radio companies to come together into an umbrella organization, the British Broadcasting Company. Uh, so there would be one organization uh, that would coordinate broadcasting for the nation. So that was the, that was, if you like, the the logistical technical solution to a problem of trying to avoid too much chaos um, on the airways. But there was something else that's going on, which is which is equally important. And that's what was the social purpose of radio? Because the people who started the BBC themselves, people like John Reith, the first general manager, or Cecil Lewis, the deputy director of programmes, for instance, the people who formed the creative nucleus of the early BBC, weren't actually that interested in radio. Radio for them was a tool to a social end. This was a generation that had gone through the First World War and it had come out of the First World War where there was an interesting social debate. Lots of people were despairing at civilization. How would civilization, civilization stop from sliding constantly into barbarism and conflict? People were looking for some way to redeem humanity, if you like, to build a new, better world of mutual understanding and peacefulness and so on. And they saw radio, this freely radiating means of distributing culture, information, ideas, and so on, reaching possibly every single household. They saw that as the solution, the means of actually spreading culture. Uh, so they saw radio as a means to an end. And, and John Reith, the first general manager of the BBC, famously said that when the BBC started, there were, as he put it, no sealed orders to open. No one was telling them what this thing was for, and they had to invent it for themselves. But they brought to it this, this grand social vision of trying to leave the world a better place. And an important part of that was that this was a radio service that had to be equally available to everyone. It was no good at being ring-fenced for the privileged few. And that's why, throughout the BBC history, the idea of universal access has been really, really important. It's there right at the beginning in 1922. This is something that can reach into every home, therefore it should reach into every home. How did the BBC change during World War II when, when their job was to inform the public about the, the latest uh, in a war zone? Well, the BBC grew hugely in the Second World War. It was undoubtedly a really, really important time for, for the BBC. Uh, let me, let me just, just to illustrate that, let me read you an extract. This is, a, this is um, an interview with Frank Gillard, who was one of the BBC's war correspondents in the Second World War and would later go on to be a, a senior manager of the BBC. This is what he said when he arrived in the BBC, sort of halfway through the war. 
I found, he said, a great sense of mission and purpose. It was a new BBC, and it was a BBC that was, I would say, totally identified with the life of ordinary, everyday people. Every day, twice a day, you had these sessions of music while you work. Every day you had workers' playtime broadcast from factories, variety styles, entertaining workers, and so on. The emphasis was all that way. The BBC was with the people. And it was quite exhilarating to be in it. Yes, we were working under improvised conditions. We were working with makeshift equipment. We were worn out because we got no sleep at night because of air raids and that sort of thing. But we were doing something that was important for the morale of the country. We were part of the great national war effort. The BBC, in a couple of years, became an absolutely revolutionised institution. Now, I read that account and I thought, well, what lies behind that? There are so many things going on there. And that's a really very clear statement that the BBC did change dramatically during the war. So there, there was the national broadcaster. The government recognised that it was going to be important for public morale, that it was entertained, especially at the beginning when theatres and cinemas were shut. Um, it was important for the public to be provided with up-to-date, reliable information. There was tension between the government and the BBC because the government naturally wanted to be in control of exactly what was said on air, and the BBC did not want to relinquish that control that it had. But by and large, the BBC saw itself as part of the war effort. Now, if broadcasting, radio, is going to be an important part of daily life, in wartime conditions, a means of boosting morale and providing reliable information. It's only going to work if people are listening, and people are only going to listen if they feel that it speaks their language, that it understands them. So the BBC that had been a little bit lofty and a little bit polite and undoubtedly very middle class in tone, had to really learn how to be accessible and to provide more programmes that people enjoyed, that offered pure escapism. And one of the programmes that was mentioned in that quotation, Music While You Work, was an extraordinary departure for the BBC. It was a factory programme that went out twice a day to provide brisk, tempoed, pleasurable uh, music, uh, as background listening for people who are working in factories. No fancy presentation and not what the BBC thought would be good music, but what they knew people in the factories would enjoy listening to, to improve morale. So it was a BBC that instead of deciding for themselves what the public wanted, it was the BBC working out what the public wanted and what they needed was what they wanted and the BBC had to provide that so it was a more democratically inclusive organisation and then of course there is all the machinery of news gathering war is important information is important up-to-date accurate reports of what's happening on the battlefront and if you take for instance D-Day in 1944 a dramatic moment in the war when the tide has turned and there's the largest seaborne invasion in history, um, an attempt to move into France and at last 
roll back the Nazi occupation of Western Europe. Big military moment, but also a really important moment for British listeners who've had years of being under siege and years of stasis and so on. And the BBC has to invent a whole machinery of how it does this. It has to create the role of the war correspondent, create a war reporting unit, shrink recording equipment so it becomes more portable, so it can be dragged around in battlefields, set up networks of mobile transmitters and so on. So a lot of the, the if you like, the template, the pattern of how you report war and you report it thoroughly from lots of different perspectives and you report it in a way that is vivid and colourful but also accurate. All of that was really established in the heat of the Second World War. And the BBC comes out of the Second World War with a much more elevated reputation, not just in Britain, for having provided entertainment and morale boosting and information through the hardest of conditions, but also in the rest of the world, because the BBC has also boosted hugely the amount of overseas broadcasting it's doing. It's been broadcasting to occupied Europe, people in France and people in enemy countries like Germany listening secretly to the BBC to get accurate information about what's happening. And by the end of the war, you've got something like 20 million people on continental Europe listening to the BBC and who have developed a kind of loyalty to the BBC for setting a kind of gold standard of reliability in terms of what it's broadcasting. So the Second World War undoubtedly was hugely important for the BBC. So what are some of the challenges that the BBC faces now? Uh, you mentioned kind of the pushback from uh, Britain's government who wanted control of what the public heard in, in wartime. Um, Churchill uh, was a kind of a, 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 he disdained of the BBC's coverage of the war and also Margaret Thatcher and her husband. Um, what is the present day challenge to the BBC and how are they reacting to that? Well, I mean, to some extent, you mentioned Churchill and, and, and Margaret Thatcher. I mean, to some extent, their hostility to the BBC was, was a mixture of, of personality and politics. I mean, Churchill, Churchill was not a Democrat. He was authoritarian and he really wanted to control the BBC. Ever since the days of the general strike in 1926, he wanted to take over the BBC and, and use it as a state mouthpiece. Um, and he always grumbled about the BBC. And, and, and it was personal with him. I think he just really resented the fact that someone like John Reith had as much influence over what the public thought as he did as Chancellor of the Exchequer or Prime Minister or whatever his role was. And Margaret Thatcher, to some extent, the same as well. She needed enemies. You know, it's one of those political... Uh, she was, a, a, you know, a strong-willed political operator. With her, though, politics... Uh, was more important. She was committed to the idea of the free market, of consumer sovereignty. And with new technology coming along, like satellite and cable and so on, there was an opportunity there to expand the number of kind of broadcasters in the market. And the BBC was this huge organisation that was sort of in the way of, of new companies and new operators um, moving into the broadcasting marketplace. 
that idea really is still there as part of the Conservative Party thinking. Now, the BBC faces problems with politicians from both of the main parties here, but it's slightly different. Labour governments tend to be disappointed with the BBC because they always think the BBC should compensate for the right-wing bias of the British press. For Conservatives, it's a much deeper ideological suspicion of something which is sort of public sector. It seems to represent that sort of public service where uh, something slightly socialistic about it, if you like, that everyone pays the licence fee and it's freely available for everyone. And the Conservative instinct for individualism is that we should only really pay for what we use and we shouldn't have to pay for what other people use. So there's something about the conservative mindset, if you like, which is deeply suspicious of the BBC. And with the present conservative government, a government that's really been in power for at least a decade now, they really have it in for the BBC. Um, they, they attack it for its editorial values. They stoke up a culture war where they present the BBC as, as infested with liberal, woke, metropolitan values. Um, they want the BBC to be smaller. They do not like the idea of the BBC being successful. The more successful the BBC is, the more it stands in the way of private interests and commercial broadcasters, uh, which of course they, they favour. And they've got the means to undermine the BBC, not just in terms of constantly nagging away and interfering. But even though the BBC is not a state broadcaster, it's not directly under government control, the level of the licence fee that we as citizens pay for that BBC is set every 10 years or so by the government in Parliament. And so the Conservatives have restricted that licence fee and, and set it below inflation. And the effect of that is over the last decade or so, the BBC's income has shrunk by something like 30%. Uh, the government are also exploring the idea of ending that licence fee and maybe replacing it with a subscription system. And actually, the subscription system seems very sensible in many ways. If you want something, you subscribe to it. But the whole point of the BBC has always been that everyone has equal access, universal access to and I'm quoting John Reith here, the best that has been thought and said and done in the world. It's freely available to everyone. So if everyone puts in, everyone can take out whenever they need to and whenever they want to. And, and that's something which I think is ideologically kind of at odds with conservative thinking. And the conservatives are in power and I think it's going to be really, really critical what happens in the next few years for the BBC. There's no doubt about it. The BBC could be destroyed by the current government. They are a reckless bunch and they could easily get rid of it. It won't just be disappear or be abolished, but it will be shrunk down and weakened to the point where it's not any longer the nation's broadcaster. 
a part of mainstream life for almost everyone in the country. It will become a more marginal thing, more like, if you like, NPR in the United States. Yeah, useful, um, very good broadcasting service, but something that is not uh, the dominant mainstream broadcasting service of the country. So yes, it's a real problem for the BBC, the current government and the current political environment. Well, uh, David, thank you so much for talking to me. You're welcome. David Hendy is Emeritus Professor of Media and Cultural History at the University of Sussex. He talked to us today about his books celebrating the 100th year anniversary of the BBC. His past books include Life on Air, A History of Radio 4, and Noise, A Human History of Sound and Listening. it for this week's episode of News Nerds. I was your host, Ezra Graham. You can find us on the web at newsnerdspodcast.com. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cowpies, and other extras. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Another option is to listen to us every other week at 5.30 p.m. Mountain Time on KGVM 95.9 FM, community radio for the Gallatin Valley. If you're not in the Gallatin Valley, you can go to their website, kgvm.org, to listen. Please support us through our Patreon and PayPal accounts. That's how we support this show, through donations from you. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.